Well, if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and open to John chapter 17. <clears throat> John chapter 17. That's where we're going to be this morning. John 17. We're going to be in verses 1 through 5. John 17, verses 1 through 5. For a lot of my life, I've spent a lot of time uh, studying. Uh, you know, I did college and seminary, which is a lot of school. I think it's about nine years, even after high school. Uh, I wrote a lot of papers. I've studied for a lot of tests, and a lot of you guys have done the same. Uh, a lot of the time, I listen to music when I'm doing those things, and some of you guys probably do that too. You listen to music, just kind of helps you focus or something. But uh, I like to listen to several different genres of music when I study. But one thing that I can't have when I study is lyrics. I can't have words in the music. It just, I want to think about what they're saying and then what I'm trying to say in my own mind and it just kind of throws me off. And so I like lyricless music. A lot of time it's maybe electronic or classical or even opera because I can't understand the words of opera so that doesn't really be the same, you know. Uh, but my favorite is movie scores, original soundtracks uh, to different movies. The reason I love movies, I, mean, I make a lot of movie references. You guys uh, know that. A lot of you are like, yeah, I know. All right. <laughs> Sorry for the you don't get those movie references, but I, I like movies a lot uh, and I really like movie soundtracks because because they kind of uh, put you in a, a, a mood that, that brings you back to when you saw the movie. You guys know what I mean? Uh, and so when I'm studying, a lot of times I like to listen to movie soundtracks. But my favorite tracks in those soundtracks are the ones that uh, kind of bring you to the conflict of the story. Uh, or, or to the climax of the story, rather. And so in those songs, there's a lot of time it's, it kind of builds up. And the musical term for that would be the, the crescendo, right? Where the music kind of builds to its peak. And then you get to this big arrival moment. And in the movie, you even think to yourself, oh yeah I remember that moment and it's just this special time in your brain where it makes you feel things the way that movies make you feel things and so I like to listen to soundtracks and I like that crescendo feeling where you feel the drama building you feel the climax approaching you watch a movie you know the story builds for two hours and finally it reaches its fulfillment in this moment this climax that's kind of where we find ourselves in John 17 the story's been building Right, We find ourselves in John 17 and Jesus has been saying this whole time in John a repeated phrase, my hour has not yet come or the hour is soon approaching, the hour is coming or it's not here yet. For the entire book of John we've seen that phrase but today he says a different phrase. He says the hour has come, it's arrived, it's here. This is the crescendo of the music of the Bible. This is when the climax is approaching. And so this high priestly prayer that we're going to study this morning, the music is starting to build. The arrest of Jesus is on the cusp of the end of this prayer. I mean, it's coming. And so as the music builds, we know as Bible-believing Christians, as New Testament church members, as people who know the story of the gospel, that this is a good climax. And that the ending of the story is marvelous. But the crescendo is building. It's not the hour that Jesus has been preparing for for two hours like a movie, or it's not even the, the hour that Jesus has been preparing for for a few years. This is the hour that all of creation has been anticipating since the promise by God of the death of death in Genesis chapter 3. That's a long build-up, right? But this is the climax. This is the one long story reaching its big finish. And at the core of this crescendo, at the core of this drama is irony. The irony is this, that the glory of the sun, the glory of God, the greatest climax in human history is his crushing death followed by his wonderful resurrection. But we got to get to death first. We have to get to sorrow first. 
And so as we read this morning, John 17 verses 1 through 5, I want you to understand that this is the crescendo, all right? The music is building and the drama is intense. This is real life here. So let's look at it. John 17 verses 1 through 5. It should be on the screen behind me. Hopefully you have a physical copy of God's word. We're going to walk through it together, all right? So this is what the Bible says. John 17 verses 1 through 5. Jesus is praying. It says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Amen. He says in verse 1 um, that after he had spoken these words, uh, these words are what we've looked at already in the past several weeks in chapters 14 through 16. It's the farewell discourse. Now we've reached the farewell, okay, of the farewell discourse. It's come to an end and Jesus has already finished this farewell discourse in which he is encouraged and he has strengthened the resolve of his disciples who would soon see their master betrayed, murdered, criminalized, arrested, fill in the blanks, they would be devastated. And so Jesus has encouraged them. He has strengthened their resolve. And now we see that he's walking with them, certainly at this point probably making their way to Gethsemane in the farewell discourse where he would eventually be arrested. And we see the last thing that John recorded here in chapter 17 before he is arrested. If you look at chapter 18, probably you have a subheading that says the betrayal and arrest of Jesus because this is the end, right? This is the last things that happen before Jesus is arrested and he is praying a high priestly prayer. It's kind of a strange term. It wasn't something that we see in the Bible, a high priestly prayer. What does that mean? It means that this is Jesus' prayer of intercession. All right? This is his prayer of mediation, of going between. Going between who? Going between the world and a holy God. A devastatingly sinful world and a holy God. And so in this prayer, we see that he prays in a few different ways. First, we see in verses 1 through 5 that he prays for himself, which is what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, next week, we'll have revival, and so we'll be out of chapter 17 of John uh, my grandfather will preach elsewhere. And then uh, the next week we will pick back up and see that after he's prayed for himself, he then goes and prays for his disciples. And after he's prayed for his disciples, it finishes off this prayer with him praying for believers after his disciples, those who are yet to come to faith in Christ. Now we're not sure when and where chapter 17's prayer occurs. You could maybe say that it happens in Gethsemane. The prayer that we know of that Jesus did in Gethsemane for sure was a very sad and somber and devastating prayer, wasn't it? Where he sweat tears of blood. And maybe this is involved in that. I personally think that it was probably involved in that. But John, uh, John gives us a bit of a different take here. This prayer is not a prayer of helpless defeat. It's a prayer of hopeful fulfillment. And though the night would hold brutal tragedy, it would also begin a weekend of triumph and glory. It's ironic, isn't it? The greatest devastation, the greatest humiliation in all of human history was for the glory of God. You see, the cross is the event of God's most glorious revelation 
of himself. I'm going to say that again. The cross is the event of God's most glorious revelation of himself. And so certainly we need to understand it, right? So if you're taking notes this morning, this is going to be our structure. Three steps of a God-first state of mind, all right? Three steps of a God-first state of mind. The first is to embrace who the cross is primarily about, okay? Notice I put that word primarily in there. We'll get to that in a minute, all right? To, to embrace who the cross is primarily about. If I were to go around Millport or, or Alabama or the South or really just the United States even, you'd probably say, if I were to go around and poll uh, 100 random churchgoers concerning why Jesus died on the cross, the overwhelming response would be that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And that answer would not be incorrect. It wouldn't be wrong, but it also isn't completely right. Right? And I've said this before, so maybe you guys know where I'm going with this. Yes, Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins, and that's not a wrong answer, but it's not a completely right answer. The primary reason that Jesus came to earth and died a cur- on a cursed cross was for the glory of God. Yes, absolutely, Jesus died to save us from our sins. Hallelujah, praise God. But primarily, Jesus died on the cross for the glory of God. And this is what we see clearly in the first part of the high priestly prayer. Look at verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, and listen to what he says, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, I want to say something before we even get into it, all right? This is kind of confusing, and I'll be honest, the doctrine of the Trinity is just confusing, okay? I can't completely explain the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is both uh, one and three kind of simultaneously. He is one God, God in singular, and yet he is manifested in three different persons. Whenever you're able to totally understand that perfectly, please come let me know so that we can, so I can figure it out, because I don't understand the science behind that or whatever you want to say, the spirituality behind that. All I know is that God is one, and yet he is three persons. And so in this passage, we see two of those persons having a really unique and intimate moment between themselves, the Father and the Son. And this prayer's main theme is focused on self-glory. That's important, right? This prayer's main theme is self-glory. The main focus of Jesus in this prayer, and as he approaches Calvary, is that all eyes and hearts be focused on the magnitude of this event and everything that it has to say about God. Why? Because at the cross, the glory of God is seen most perfectly, most fully. The glory of God at the cross of Christ is seen most fully. Now, I've used the term several times already. I've used the term glory, and I've used the term glorify. I want to talk about both of those terms for just a moment, okay? Glory and glorify. If I were to ask you, what is the word glory? What is God's glory? Tell me in your own words, what is God's glory? You may have a decent answer for that. You probably would have to think about it for a minute. You know, it's kind of a weird word. I think that I understand it in my head, but it's hard to kind of get it out. If I were to talk about the glory of God, I guess... Uh, just who he is i'm not really sure and the same thing with the word glorify what does it mean to glorify god maybe that one would be a little bit easier saying something along the lines of to worship him or to praise him or to honor him well i want to talk about that what is glory okay first of all that's a noun okay glory is a thing glorify is a verb 
It's a noun. Okay, so glory. What is glory? Glory, very short. I'm just going to put it very simply. Glory is the display of God's divine attributes. Okay? Glory, God's glory, is the display of his own divine attributes. Specifically, his divine goodness. Okay? It's a display of his divine goodness. And certainly, under the umbrella of his divine goodness, you could throw a lot of things in there. You could talk about his love. God is good, isn't he? Because he is so loving. God is good because he is so powerful. He is so gracious. God is good because he is overwhelmingly kind and he is a generous uh, being. He is patient. You see how all of those things fall under this umbrella of God being a good God. And not just a good God, but a divinely good God. You notice, all of those things are good, but I mean, we're honest with ourselves. We can all do those things, right? We can be loving. We can be gracious. We can be kind. We can be patient. We can even be powerful, can't we, in some extent? But here's the thing. There's a difference between being loving and having a divine measure of love. There's a difference between being kind and having a divine measure of kindness. God's glory is the divine attributes of himself, specifically his own goodness. Okay, so then what does it mean to glorify God? If that's his glory, then what does it mean to glorify God? Very simply, it's this. It's a verb, okay? It is the proper response to God's glory. It's the proper response to God's glory. Glorifying is just responding to who he is. If you understand rightly the glory of God, we will rightly respond in glorifying God. And you could also say it this way, to glorify God is to see him as he is, to savor him as he is, and to celebrate him as he is. See, savor, and celebrate. It's to soak him in. Okay, so that's what God's glory is. That's what it means to glorify God. And so in this passage, in John chapter 17, when Jesus talks about glorifying self and glorifying the Father, what he's talking about is that God... Father, I want you to be clothed in the splendor that you deserve, right? I want myself as God, Jesus, to be clothed in the splendor that only we, I, deserve. Now, how would the cross bring about clothing God with splendor? Isn't that, it seems oxymoronic, doesn't it? It's murder. It's capital punishment. It's suffering. And maybe more than all those things, it's embarrassing. It's shameful. God dying on a cursed criminal's cross? That's embarrassing. That's shameful. So how can the cross be so shameful and yet be glorifying, splendor giving? Verse 2 kind of talks about that. He says, you've given him, the son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That word since, in my translation, you may have something that says just as, just as, or since. Really just as is a good translation, that word there. Basically, what that says is, because of the sacrificial, powerful, saving death and resurrection of Jesus, the Father has given the Son ultimate authority over all of humanity. When he says all flesh, that's a Jewish way of saying every single person in the world. All right? Every single person in the world. Father, what's about to happen on the cross, through that, you're giving me ultimate authority. That's what Jesus is saying. And with this authority, the Son is drawing sinners near the throne of grace. That's what that authority is. It's that Jesus has the authority to say, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will give you 
salvation. And so for this first main point that we're talking about, to embrace who the cross is primarily about, how do we apply that? Embrace who the cross is primarily about? Here's what I want to do. I want you and I to understand the magnitude of how awesome God's glory is. Here's the problem. You can't. (laughs) You can't. You never will. Even in heaven, you never will fully understand the glory of God. But we can try, and certainly we can understand a great measure of God's glory. To understand the magnitude of how awesome God's glory is. Hear me say this, folks. I say the word primarily for this reason. Absolutely, Jesus died to save us from our sins, and it's it's good news, isn't it? But here's the reality of it. The cross is not awesome because of us. The cross is awesome because of God. You've never seen a superhero movie where the people that are saved is the hero, right? Who's the hero? The hero. The one that does the saving. Guys, the cross is not awesome because you are the centerpiece. The cross is awesome because God is the centerpiece. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus is the centerpiece of redemption day. Not you and me. Put it this way, our first thought in Calvary should not be ourselves and our eternal destination, but rather the glory of God. In other words, your first thought when you think of the cross of Christ should not be what you get out of that situation. It should be the divine goodness of God. It should be things like God's love, things like God's grace, things like God's justice, things like God's patience, things like God's mercy. That's what we should think about when we think about the cross of Christ, not what you get out of it. Calvary wasn't some spiritual grocery store you realize that calvary was a mountain upon which the greatest sacrifice of worship ever existed took place and so when we think about calvary we should think about the glory of god the main thing on jesus's mind as he hung there was not how good you were it was how good how great the father is so secondly three steps of a god first state of mind is to pursue eternal life as God intended it. To pursue eternal life as God intended it. Titled this Walk Through John, uh, That You May Have Life. And really, you saw the graphic up there. That's not even my title, it's John's title. And really, even more than that, it's God's title, okay? So that's the title that we go through John. We see that later on at the end of John, that John says, I wrote these things down. Jesus is talking about, I'm, I'm doing all these things that you may have life. That's the whole reason for the book of John. And you could even argue that's the whole reason for the Gospels and for the Gospel, that you may have life. And so, what I want you to understand is that that you may have life, what Jesus is saying, what John is writing, that's more than just everlasting life. That's life as God intended you to have. It's more than just everlasting life. More than, more than the fact that you just won't ever die if permanently, okay? This is the fact that God wants you to have life as he intended it. To Jesus, eternal life was more than just never ceasing to exist. You realize that, right? Eternal life is more than just never ceasing to exist. I mean, goodness, people that spend eternity apart from God in a real place called hell, for all intents and purposes, they have eternal life. You see what I'm saying? They have a never-ending existence. So eternal life is more than just everlasting life. There's more at stake here. And Jesus certainly says more than that about what eternal life really is. Look at verse 3. 
And this is eternal life. Okay, here it is. Not everlasting life, but here he says, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What's eternal life? Eternal life is intimacy and a saving knowledge of God. Eternal life is knowing God. It is knowing God in an intimate relationship. Eternal life is not so much everlasting life as it is personal saving knowledge of the everlasting one that gives life. There's a big difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone, isn't there? When you say that, there's a big difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. I know a lot of things about a lot of people, but I don't know all of those people. I I know a lot of things about Barack Obama or about Justin Bieber or about Michael Jordan or about Robert De Niro. I know some things about those people. I don't know those people. Neither do you, probably. Maybe you do. You tell me about it if you do know those guys. Uh, But you probably don't know them either. You know several things about them, but that doesn't mean that you know them. Why? Because to know someone requires that you have a functional relationship with them, right? There's a big difference between knowing your spouse and knowing things about your spouse. Because you have a functional relationship with your spouse. It means that there's fellowship. It means that you know the person's character. You know the person. It means that you have an open avenue of trust between you. It means that there's personal intimacy between you. There's a big difference between knowing things about somebody and knowing somebody. I say that because the central essence of a follower of Jesus is more than knowing about God. It is about knowing God. Knowing God. Eternal life is not just the outcome of faith. It's the daily fruit of faith. Eternal life is not just the outcome of faith, it's the daily fruit of faith. If eternal life is knowing God, then doesn't that mean that we can have eternal life right now before we even die? Right? You don't have to wait for heaven to have eternal life. Eternal life is in knowing God. It's in having a functional, embracing, intimate relationship with God. And so there's four ways that we can see this in our own lives, okay? Eternal life is not just the outcome of faith. It's the daily fruit of faith. We see that in four different ways. First of all, we see that, first and foremost, foundationally, in a relationship with God. The only way you can know God is to have an actual, real, intimate relationship with God. How does that happen? Well, first of all, You need to know your relationship with God before you know God. Everyone has some sort of a relationship with God. You do realize that. But there's a big difference between a relationship with God that ends in death and a relationship with God that ends in eternal life. To know God, to have a relationship with Him, you church member, you lost person, you need to understand that God is holy. We just sang about that, right? Holy, holy, holy. You know what that word means? It means that he is different. It means that he is set apart. Now from our point of view, if God is different, how is he different than you and I? Well, primarily, he is righteous. He is not tainted by sin. You know what that means, right? If he's different than us in that way, and if we're different than him in that way, and that we are not distant from sin, but we are part of sin, there are consequences for that. There are consequences for that. God is holy. He is set apart. He is different. And that means that we cannot spend eternity with Him left to ourselves. The wages of sin is death. is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. That's a problem, isn't it? 
And so for us to have a relationship with God, we have to figure out how do we reconcile those things. I can't be in a relationship with God, a positive relationship with God, unless something happens. That's why Jesus arrived on the scene. That's the truth of the gospel, isn't it? That while we were far off from God, by the blood of Jesus, we have been brought near to God. But church, you must understand that left to the work of Jesus, your work is not good enough. It's just not. Because to have a relationship with God, you need to understand. He is holy. You are sinful. Christ is perfect. Christ is the mediator. He redeemed you. He purchased you. He was your substitute. I called that cross a cursed cross because the curse belonged to you, not to Jesus. And yet he became sin who knew no sin so that in him, you might not become a curse, but become the righteousness of God. That's beautiful. That's the gospel. So if eternal life is the daily fruit of faith, first we see that in relationship with God. Second, we see that in forever delighting in God. There's four of these, okay? Second is forever delighting in God. I'll put it this way. Is God the source of your delight? Does your joy rise and fall on the circumstances of life? Or does it constantly rise on knowing who you are? before the throne of grace is he your delight if your delight is in circumstances your delight will be variable if your delight is in god it is fixed it is final because there's nothing anybody can do to take that away relationship with god forever delighting in god thirdly seeing and rejoicing in god again there's four of these seeing and rejoicing in god This means growing in your understanding of Him. It means responding to your understanding of Him. How can you see and rejoice in God if you don't know God? If you don't know about God even? You go to the Word of God to learn about God. You pray with the Father to have intimacy with Him. And so if you want to see and rejoice in God, you must go to the book and see how that's done. And then fourthly, It means living how I was created to live. Living how I was created to live. Think back to the Garden of Eden. The Bible tells us that man and God, though man was not God, they had a positive and intimate fellowship with God. It tells us that Adam and Eve used to walk, or Adam used to walk with God in the coolness of the day. They had fellowship. They had intimacy. That's before sin, you guys. So what is God's design, initial design, free from sin? What's his design for your life? How were you created to live? You were created to live in friendship with God. You were created to live in fellowship with God. So eternal life means not waiting for everlasting life to make that your positive reality. You don't understand, you don't have to wait till you get to heaven to have fellowship with God. You don't have to wait for all things to be final. Before you can walk with God. That's what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And that's why he said it is finished. Because he brought together that which is far off. Don't wait for eternity. To pursue eternal life. Life as God intended it. I think a good way to summarize that is that God is most glorified in you. When you are most satisfied in him. That's what John Piper said. I think it's wonderful. It's a great summary of the human life. God is most glorified in you. When you are most satisfied in Him. 
Third and finally, three steps of a God-first state of mind. Number three is to cherish that Jesus' mission on earth is mine as well. Jesus' mission on earth is mine as well. I said that to glorify God is to, to see Him, to savor Him, and to celebrate Him. When I think about that word savor, I think about food. Okay, I really like food a lot. Some of you guys could really throw down in the kitchen, and I appreciate that about you, by the way. Okay, um, I really like food, and so when I think of the word savor, I think about like a, a really delicious dish. I think about like a big juicy steak. I really like steak, and when a steak is well made, it's just good, isn't it? Some of you guys are like, oh, amen, yes, it's very good, it's a good thing. I think about the word savor, I think about a, a, a food that I really like, like, like steak. You know, we can, we can eat steak for the glory of God. I want to tell you what I mean by that. Uh, I've used this illustration before. We can eat steak. You can do anything for the glory of God for that matter. Because that definition, to see, to savor, and to celebrate, is perfect, I think, for what it means to glorify God. Because I can look at a steak and think, God created this and it is good. Right? This is, this is wonderful. This is, I'm seeing this. I'm observing this. I'm observing that God is good in this. When I taste a steak, I savor it. I, I, I want to embrace the flavor because it is another evidence that God is good. I mean, what a wonderful thing that God has given us that we get to eat food and enjoy food. We can give gl- glory to God in food, see it, to savor it, and then ultimately to celebrate God who gave it, right? That's what it means to glorify God, is to see how he is at work, to savor how he is at work and who he is, and to celebrate him because of who he is and because he is at work. We see this in verses 4 and 5. Look there. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In verse 4, Jesus says that he has accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do. That word, those words, the work, what he's talking about is all of his ministry. He's talking about everything that he's done, his teachings, his miracles, and certainly not excluding what's about to be accomplished in the next couple of days, that he is going to complete the work of God for the glory of God. Philippians chapter 2. You know what? Go ahead and turn there. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. I want you guys to see something, okay? Philippians chapter 2. It kind of typifies this, and so I want you guys to see it. While you're getting there, you know, Philippians 2, it tells us that Jesus, in a sense, forfeited a certain degree of his own glory in taking on the form of a servant, a man, and dying on a cross. Now, now Jesus never ceased to be God. I want to make that very clear. But he did uh, long for a day, at least we saw this in verse 5. Jesus longed for the day, in, in chapter 17, verse 5, that he himself would be restored to the glory that he shared with the Father before the world was formed. And so, there's a sense in which Jesus forfeited a, a portion of glory in taking on the form of man because he's praying God restore that glory bring it back to me but as a result of Jesus's obedience on the cross I want you to see something in Philippians 2 verses 10 and 11 as a result of Jesus's obedience to the cross this is what it says verses 10 and 11 so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow okay because of what he did every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is 
Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Okay, he's Lord. If Jesus is Lord, then his mission on earth is our mission on earth in eternity as well, isn't it? Understand the word Lord means. If we call him our Lord and Savior, Savior is pretty self-explanatory. If we call him our Lord, it means that he's our master. It means that we're about the business that he's about. Whatever he's about, I want to be about that because he is Lord. What was the business of Jesus? The glory of God. That was his business. And if that's his mission on earth and in all of eternity, then our mission on earth, our mission in all of eternity is the glory of God. What mission is that? To live for the glory of God, to see God, to savor God, to celebrate God, and hear this, to lead other people to do the same. That's what it means to glorify God. See Him, savor Him, celebrate Him, and lead other people to do the same thing. In short, it means to brag on our God. It means to make much of Jesus, to brag on Him. Every single detail of your life is intended to reveal and celebrate the goodness of God. Hear me say that again. Every single detail of your life is intended to reveal and to celebrate the goodness of God. In short, you exist for the glory of God. It's why you exist. It means that you need to rise each morning. You need to rise each morning and and parent for the glory of God. You need to go to work for the glory of God. Because every aspect of your life is supposed to be geared and pointed in that direction. It means you need to eat, like we talked about just a minute ago, for the glory of God. God can be the center focus of your diet. You know that? Of your food habits. God can be the center focus of your sleep habits. It means that we host people in our homes for the glory of God. Students, it means that you study for the glory of God. Honoring Him. Grades aren't the main thing in school. The glory of God is the main thing in school. It means that you host people. You enjoy life even for the glory of God. You take in entertainment for the glory of God. You love other people for the glory of God. By the way, it's possible to love other people in an idolatrous way. Did you know that? You can love other people putting them as the center of glory. Love other people for the glory of God. Love other people because God loves other people and because you love God. It means you need to speak kindness to others for the glory of God. It means you forgive others for the glory of God. You serve others for the glory of God. Yesterday, it means that you watch football for the glory of God. It means you listen to music for the glory of God. All things you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do it in a way that sees, that savors, and that celebrates who God is. means that you brag on him all the time and by by the way fathers and mothers if this isn't happening in your home that's on you if you want your children to grow up to glorify God and the extent of your spirituality is what your children see when you're in this building don't come fussing to me when they walk away from the faith You already know the issue. You're a shepherd. You're to point your children to Jesus. You're to show them what it means to glorify God. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at that. 
I'm saying I'm constantly figuring that out. But the older Shiloh and Zion get, the more I realize I have a weighty opportunity in front of me. I'll walk home with Shiloh down this road, especially on Sunday nights when the sun is sort of going down. And she goes, and she makes those faces. You guys know what I'm talking about. Oh, Daddy, look at the clouds. Oh, look at the sun. I said, that's pretty, isn't it, Shiloh? Yeah. I said, what colors do you see? Orange and pink and gray. I said, very good. I say, you know, God did that. God made the clouds. God made the sky. God's pretty awesome. It's so easy to glorify God, isn't it? It's really easy to do it. It just means that you need to be near enough to Him that you're thinking about Him. And how can you think about Him if you're not near Him? Over the weekend, I had a really amazing opportunity. Um, A friend of mine that I grew up with, he's been my friend for... Uh, man, 15, 16, 17 years or so. One of my oldest friends. Um, went to high school together and college together. And uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't really walk with Jesus. You know, he's lost. Um, made a decision when he was a kid, but uh, there's no fruit of that. And so for all intents and purposes, one would assume that he doesn't know the Lord. Um, but lately, uh, our relationship has kind of rekindled and we talk frequently and we wanted to go see a movie together when next time I was in Birmingham in town. And so um, we talk a lot. He asked me a lot of questions. Like, we'll, we'll just be talking casually. And so he'll say, what do you think about what, what the Supreme Court just did? Or what do you think about, you know, do you think that my dog that just died went to heaven? I mean, don't think, that's not a silly question, okay? It's a, it's a purpose-seeking question. He has real questions about real-life things. And so that's opportunities. You understand that. It's an opportunity to glorify God and to point people to Jesus, okay? So we were talking and. I never think anything of it. I just do my best to kind of show him that there's, there's, there's a bigger picture, right? For years it's been that way, but recently more so. And so um, when I was in Birmingham uh, yesterday or the day before, I texted him and said, hey, let's go see that movie. Are you, are you around? He said, are you in town? I said, yeah. And so he said, come over to my house before. I want to have a, 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 t- I want to have a talk, one of our talks, okay? So I drove over to his house and I walked in his back door. He had the TV on. He turned off the TV, turned around, looked at me. He gave me a big hug, and he said, I'm ready to be reborn. Now, that's special. <clears throat> and so he said, <clears throat> he said, I've been fighting this for so long. He said, there were so many times when we were talking that I just wanted to just say it, but I just couldn't. My pride just, it kept me from it. He said, I've known for so long what I needed to do. He's got a baby on the way. And so he said, I can't be the father that I want to be unless I'm right with God. I can't be the husband that I want to be unless I'm right with God. So he understands those things. But that comes from a plotting of a relationship over years and years and years. He's told me he's known for years that he needs Jesus and just never surrendered to the Lord. And it convicted me because I thought to myself, like he said there were so many times that he almost said it. And I thought to myself, why didn't I just ask him? Why didn't I just say, if you died today, do you know where you would spend eternity? That would have been it. If I would have just asked him, he would have just told me and said, you got it. Lead me to the Lord. He told me that he always knew it would be me that did that with him. But that he fought that for so long. 
It was convicting. It was uplifting. I was so encouraged by that. But it was convicting as well. Because I thought to myself, I wasn't doing everything that I could to glorify God in that relationship. And I'm thankful. I was so humbled that God used me in that way. That's rare. It doesn't happen a lot. I know you guys are thinking, well, you're a pastor. You have those conversations all the time. It doesn't go that way all the time. But man, when you see that fruit, that is special, isn't it? That is a special, special thing. Glorify God in your relationships. We went and saw that movie, and so I didn't really get to think about it. And then when I was driving home, it started to really hit me. I started to get tears in my eyes, and I was just like, I was just so thankful because I'm so terrible. But God saw fit to use me in that way. I'm so terrible. He could use anybody. There's nothing special about me. And he chose to use me in that way. And you want me to tell you what my response was when my friend got saved. I'm driving home. And you know what I did not think to myself? I did not think to myself, man, good for him. That wasn't my thought. My thought wasn't good for him. Way to go, man. That wasn't my thought. You want me to tell you what my thought was? God did that. Glory to God. Because he did that. That's what it means to live for the glory of God. He's the star of the show. In everything that you do, whether you parent, whether you work, whether you study, whether you enjoy football, do all things for the glory of God. And so I challenge you, parents, students, lost people that have been fighting that pride for decades maybe, submit, fall before the throne of grace. He loves you and he wants you. Let's pray. Father, as we respond, we glorify you. We sing holy, holy, holy. It's who you are. Lord, thank you for loving us. Our goal today, our goal in sharing the gospel even, when we share the gospel with others, our goal is not to enlist new converts. Our goal in sharing the gospel is to make new worshipers. Lord, help us to do that in our homes, with our children, with our wives, with our husbands. Help us to do that in our workplaces. Help us to do that in our schools. Wherever we go, whatever we're doing, help us to help people to see that God is worthy and worthy to be praised. To make new worshipers in the name of Jesus this morning. Lord, we pray that there will be a new worshiper in this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.